0: Welcome to another episode of Petty Politics, bringing you the petty and
1: the political.
0: <laughs> so, of course, we have some tea today, but you know, rather than tea, it's a whole person.
1: I mean, it, it overflowed. It's so over, we, brought, we brought people to in some the tea. form of
0: uh, this human has manifested into some tea and overflowed all of our cups. Ooh, we are the shooken. essence. <laughs> exactly the essence. So, who do we have today, Cam? So
1: today, we have the illustrious. Mm. Isn't that such a black adjective? I like that word. It's I like that word. Adjective. You did real
0: good with that one, Cam.
1: Tobias Olajuwon Wilson.
0: Ooh. You know I F- want flyer. him to say that. I want him to say that. You say that. But say Honestly, because Tobias is his
1: voice, truly.
2: Yeah, say your name. <laughs> Y'all are such a mess. <laughs> <laughs> Tobias Olajuwon
1: Wilson. Mm. Ooh, ooh. I shouldn't have said it in the first place. We do like, a lot of
0: call-ins. That voice. Who is?
1: This? I always tell Tobias he should Who be like the quiet this? storm. Like if you ever saw like that late no, night. No, he like, no. He has mm. that
0: voice. He has that voice.
1: So Tobias is a black queer scholar activist mm. lawyer.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Having graduated from Howard University School oh, of I Law. I can't wait to hear
0: about this. Yes.
1: Tobias is also now a PhD candidate at the University of Texas at Austin.
0: Okay. I mean, African-American
1: studies, shout out Longhorns. This might be a little bit of a different episode than we normally do. It may not be as segmented as we normally do. We might just kind of let it, you know, Let it go, let it
0: lose, let it flow.
1: Let it it black (laughs) queer flow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Black queer flow, yes, yes, yes.
1: (laughs) So what does it actually mean to be black queer, Tobias? Why don't you tell us about that? So I think oftentimes we think about queerness, we think about whiteness, or we think about
2: there being a difference or a separation between ones Sexuality their politic, and their race. And black queerness recognizes from the work of Horton Spillers and Natishi Omiseki Tinsley that there is no separation between blackness and queerness. In fact, the black Atlantic has always already been the queer Atlantic. Mm-hmm. So black queerness, B-L-A-Q-U-E-E-R-N-E-S-S, recognizes there is no separation for black queer folk mm-hmm. between our blackness and our queerness. They co-form each other not only in the womb, but also in the way we reproduce ourselves every single day, in the ways we relate to our parents and also our sexual partners, but also the ways in which we, you know, roll our vows, whatever it may be. Black queerness is not just a politic or an identity. It's an essence and a way of being. Mm. It's the potpourri of the earth, and, you know, we
1: can't lose our flavor.
0: I, can, I have no words. That's all I can say. Uh. Wow. <laughs> but
1: when you're thinking of queerness, we're thinking of it not specifically in the, I guess, traditional sense or the sense that is normally used, which is as a sexuality, right, mm-hmm. or as specifically homosexual, but it is far more... Broad, right? It has so many more elements to it than that. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of queerness as you conceptualize it? Yeah, so I think there's a difference between the ways I conceptualize
2: it and the ways in which white folks have traditionally conceptualized it. You know, going back to, um, what's what's his name? Walt Whitman, right? This Mm. idea of queerness as difference and as strangeness, right? This kind of British way of thinking about queerness. Uh But I I think that when we're talking about black queerness, we're talking about, one, the conjunction of the Atlantic, Mm. right, and the ways in which black people's bodies are at the bottom of the hold of a ship. And you think about, like, black women having babies and these kind of bodily fluids becoming one and coming together right mm. so there's these kind of like cosmic connections but there's all these kind of like bodily fluid and like dna and genetic connections but it's also the breaking of black gender right so the moment that black people became on these ships and became like transmuted into property the idea of gender for black people was erased right uh-huh. you were black and you were property there was no matter between he or him and actually when you look at the slave records they weren't classified as gender they were classified by weight
1: Oh, right wow. so yeah. gender
2: kind of that kind of disappeared for blackness so that is kind of the genesis of like black queerness but if you think about it now black queerness is about and queerness itself is about this idea of an opposition to a global dehumanization Mm. Queerness is an insistence on humanity for even the least among us, because the least among us are the most human among us, because they have a view from beyond the margins, Mm -hmm. right? So when we think about black queerness, it's not just that you're black and you have sex with the same sex. If you do at all, you might have sex with many sexes or many genders, you know Mm. what I mean? Those things are classified differently. But it is the belief and it's an insistence on humanity. It's the fundamental belief that everyone with a beating heart that is alive today deserves to have good food, healthy food, a place to sleep, and the opportunity, the actual Opportunity, not this neoliberal opportunity, but the opportunity and the and the tools to live their best life, as you know, our live favorite neoliberal Oprah Winfrey might say. Hello,
0: and what made you get so deep into the studies of Black queerness?
2: I think it was my own life. My grandmother was a Black Panther, and so I remember the first time that I actually began to get interested in law and kind of why I went to law school. We were in this place in southeast Kansas called Fort Scott where we're from. Also, our cousin Gordon Parks is from there. And so the town is like one of the last spaces of the Civil War. All the roads are made out of brick, and the the sheriff lives, like, maybe say, a block down from my grandmother. We're the first black family to live on Mm -hmm. the east side of town. Mm -hmm. You know, she bought a house, a little shack over there, rebuilt it, made it a beautiful house. And so I'm walking to the bus stop to get to, I think, second or third grade. And I see well, I'm walking back actually from the bus stop just got dropped off on my way home and two blocks in the house and there's a sign on the sheriff's tree and it says coon hunters only. And the sheriff walks out and he said, you know, tell your family that they want to go hunting. I'm ready. You know, and I'm thinking, well, we just moved this side of town. A white person's actually asking us to do something together. Let me Mm -hmm. tell my grandma about this. Mm -hmm. So my grandmother worked at three. In fact, you know, they make glue, tape, whatever. She works 16 hours a day, raising me and Uh my siblings. My mother is doing other things with her life at the time. She had me at 16, so she's living her best life. And Mm -hmm. so... I my grandma's coming downstairs and she gives a hug and they'll have a kiss and they, oh, how was school, baby, what have you. And I said, Well, Grandma, you want to go coon hunting? The chef invited us, and she slapped the hell out of me. Mm. And my grandma's never ever put her hands on me in my entire life. And she's wearing her 3M, you know, overalls and uniform with the high boots, mm-hmm. and she has her hair pulled back in a bun, and like, you know, for typical factory type of work. Mm-hmm. And she's like, Where'd you see that? And I and I told her, and she said, Well, just hold on, baby. So grandma goes upstairs, she takes a shower. She takes the curling irons out, the curly rods out of her hair, mm. puts on a pink Sunday dress and a pink hat, gets her pink pistol she calls candy, and a mm. Polaroid camera, and I a hammer. I them. And so we walk <laughs> over to the sheriff's house. She takes a picture of the sign, this is Kunar Lee on the tree with the Polaroid camera. Mm. She knocks it off with her hammer, and she knocks on the, the sheriff's door and rings the doorbell with the back of her pistol. And I'm hiding behind the tree because I'm just thinking, right. what in the heck is about to go on? Oh my goodness. And the sheriff comes out. And my grandmother says, I heard you like to go coon hunting. Well, I'm a pretty good damn shot. And if you're not careful, you might find the coons hunting you. Ooh. And so she throws the decal That's down got chills. on the floor. And so that was the first time I kind of began to understand the intersections wow. of race gender and law and power, mm-hmm. right? Because my grandmother only made it to high school at this point. She later went back and, you know, got her GED and she graduated college at the same time I did. So, like, mm-hmm. it's very interesting to kind of mm-hmm. look back and think about this. But that was the first time I saw that. And this is, you, I think it's a low-income woman in Kansas. Mm-hmm. No high school diploma, right? Staring down the kind of epitome of power, of racial violence and power. The mm-hmm. sheriff.
0: The sheriff, right? exactly. And
2: not giving no care about it. Because she taught me that this insistence on human life, you yeah. Is the duty of all black people to insist that they're always already human. Yeah. And to take that away means you must actually take my life away and then not be afraid. And here I am hiding behind a tree. Mm-hmm. And grandma's walking in her stilettos.
0: Before we continue, what exactly is blackness to you?
2: Mm. I, I think that blackness has multiple definitions, so it's hard. Yeah. But I like this might
0: not what, go on. This is just me asking. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. So when I think about blackness, I'm thinking about. Systemic blackness and the ways in which, like systems and states, define it. But I'm also thinking about blackness as practice, mm-hmm. as like black people deal with it. So I think systemically, we're talking about people that are se- essentially defined as unhuman or the laborers mm-hmm. of society or of the world. But I think that when we're talking about the individual level. What we're talking about as folks that have been dehumanized in a particular way, but actually insist on something other than humanity.
0: So is this? It's not like a reference to culture or anything. It's, it's talking. Of, it's a reference to mm-hmm. systems and institutions. Both and. Okay. Yeah. And how is it a reference to culture then?
2: It's a reference to culture, and I think that black people have what we call a carry-on tradition. Mm-hmm. That no matter what happens, we carry on.
0: Mm-hmm. right?
2: And carrying on can mean, like we talked about earlier when watching Black Panther, carrying on can be a jump off the ship in the bottom of the ocean. That can be a mm-hmm. carry-on to another life, depending on what your religious practice is. Mm-hmm. But carrying on can also mean that the state just called you a welfare queen, and you shouldn't have kids because you can't afford it, but you still insist on birthing black life. Mm-hmm. Right. There are particular things that only black people have been so, able to go through. So
0: I think that that's true. We should still insist on birthing black not, mm-hmm. lives and whatnot. But I don't think that that has anything to do with blackness. I think that the mm-hmm. state the problem is with the state even producing such rhetoric that there mm-hmm. is a such thing as a welfare queen. in Reagan, his yeah. ass, he didn't even know anything <laughs> talking about a welfare queen in general. And yeah. so I think that. Um, we need to dissect whether or not you can be post-blackness. like, And by that, I'm talking about post what the outside, which is the dominant culture, impressions upon us as blackness, mm-hmm. which is the normative uh, black culture, mm-hmm. which is honestly looked down upon mm-hmm. and not be post-racial.
2: Yeah, and so that's what I was trying to get at. And, and so I agree with you on a little, uh, what you were saying earlier about with Reagan and with the welfare queen, and like mm-hmm. how that is like complicated. But I also like disagree in just an inverted way. So I would say that like blackness is the ability to not be regulated by the state. And then I would continue on because I, I think you made a great point about do we become, is there a difference between post black and post racial? Mm-hmm. And is there a middle ground or like how do you thread this needle, right? Because
0: when I think about post blackness, I think that what blackness is mm-hmm. in today's society has been impressive upon black people by the dominant culture and I don't think that it's a fair representation of what black people really can be. So I I think that you can be post black but not post racial. I have what they think is black.
2: See I have no interest in being post black. I think that I think the beauty of blackness despite white and systemic perversions of what blackness is or may not be Mm -hmm. is that it is a it's a potpourri, mm-hmm. right? It's a gumbo. You got the good, you got the so-called bad, you got the terrible. Representation. most people might say terrible. We also have like this excellence mm-hmm. thing, and you got all this stuff in between, and also things that are both and terrible mm-hmm. and amazing. And so I, I don't, I'm not interested at all in being or engaging in like a post-black rhetoric. But I am interested in like the second part about this is like, do we invest in kind of this like post-racial world? Like, do we want a post-racial world where like race doesn't matter at all? Is like this kind of utopia thing, or do we want a world where there is and, like racialism, mm-hmm. and and I think that like sometimes I think you illuminated this actually really dope that sometimes people conflate the two, and I think you made a really great distinction when you were talking about and you use different words than I would post black versus post racial, mm-hmm. and so I would not want a world where people don't see my color, right? Mm-hmm. Or that that's colorblind. No, I don't want colorblind, but I do want a world where I'm not having where I'm not dealing with the afterlives of slavery.
0: Of course, exactly. Well, yeah, because we can still in yeah. this conversation distinguish yeah. post black between colorblind and po- and post racial, and they're see, all. Different. Different. I think
2: I would say post-white supremacists opposes post-black because I don't need my mm-hmm. black to be looked, well, how to talk, looked. Yeah.
0: I'm not talking about post-black, especially in a phenotypical or a cultural yeah, yeah, yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about post-black and what is stereotypically noticed or licensed at this point as black, because those yeah. are things that are impressioned upon us. For example, I don't want blackness to emulate. Oh, people who sag their pants, people who listen to the rap music and whatnot. And you, you articulated it wonderfully when mm-hmm. you said, "Okay, well, I can be black this or black this or black this," mm-hmm. and then, and that goes without saying that mm-hmm. there are so many facets of blackness right. that we cannot confine ourselves. To one type of right. I think, discourse, you know. Yeah. And so when I say post blackness, I'm not saying like I'm saying like post stereotypical blackness. Whereas like right. a black person playing goth is not going to be looked at differently. Like oh, they're modulating yeah. culture because they're playing goth. They're but doing see, I, so
2: I think that's I think yes, I think you're talking about, and I, and I get what you're saying. I think you're talking mm-hmm. about like more just to be more precise, maybe with the words. And tell me if I'm wrong. I think you're talking about more of a post hegemonic blackness, and I, I think that's a real. Like we're talking about like mm-hmm. black normativity, which is like a very interesting thing because I don't want to get to the point where like we're saying we're dissing ourselves so much people that are sagging their pants or doing X, Y, Z. Right, because that's all my uncles, right? Well, no, and they're black no, too. But
0: and this is not I know you're not saying that. This is not to make that. that the normative black and the only like, black society Like there should be no normative recognizes. black. Right, that's right. That's what I'm saying. So exactly, that's why for, I'm for me, in for me saying post-blackness, yeah. it means there is no normative black, that you can mm-hmm. be anything that you want to be without yeah. subscribing or no. even. Acknowledging certain ideologies yeah. that are impressioned upon us and by white supremacists, and that's
2: the work, and that's the job of Black Queerness. And that's what I was saying earlier. It's not just about sexuality; mm-hmm. it's about the breaking of systems,
0: mm-hmm. right? Exactly. That, like, there's
2: many types of Blackness, mm-hmm. and even your Blackness might change. Hello, like, and, hello, know? and it should be able to. Hello, and this is know? not saying, like,
0: oh, I'm looking down upon, like, oh, ethnic carousel and stuff. Like, I want to be able to wear my cornrows, and yes. I want to be able to, and, exactly, now you and can I be do fired all the time, exactly. It. And I do it because now you can be fired for it. And I do all the time, yeah. but also I don't want someone. to say Take, oh, the cornrow style, and be like, oh, well, that's the only thing that Black people wear. You know, I mm-hmm. want them to understand that Black right. is so unique, it's so just yeah. different that we can be anything, we can do yeah. anything. Yeah, and we I, I think to. that's and the that's issue. For me, po- that's
2: that's where the cultural stuff gets gets hard, right? If you don't mm-hmm. have certain hair, and you're not considered Black, whatever. And that's yeah. Uh, but at the same time, like I think for me personally, it's more troubling to see the kind of systemic and legal part. I mean, we saw the case not too long ago. I think it was was the fifth circuit of appeals, where the sister was uh, fired for having cornrows. And mm-hmm. um, it happened again earlier in the 90s, but also someone's fired for having locks mm-hmm. because the Supreme Court said this is not an immutable characteristic. Exactly. So it basically says that anything that you can change about your blackness, you can change. You must change exactly. if you want a job.
0: Exactly. To assimilate yourself into their society, which is right. why I said they are the dominant culture, it's which means that they're whiter. oftentimes creating the narrative to what is white and what is too black exactly. and they shouldn't have the ability to do that.
2: Yeah, no one should.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but again,
2: like we said our constitution, there's endemic Racism as part of it, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that the only way black people get rights and have a right to an actual job and not to be fired without cause is the hue closest whiteness Straight, as possible. The
0: only the reason question that was the United like, States how itself. white
2: have you tried to be? Hello, you can try harder.
0: Exactly. But the only thing reason that the United States has been able to persist as a nation mm-hmm. is through the subjugation of black people, right. and so that's what we know to be fact. Four hundred years of free labor. Hello,
2: damn! I wish I get five years. I'm gonna complete my <laughs> <house>. <laughs> <laughs> Give
0: me reparations. To reparations. My house. <laughs> How do you reconcile your blackness, your queerness Mm -hmm. with your legal education? I know even though you went to Howard, Mm -hmm. Howard, which is an HBCU, you still have to look at it through a context that this institution was built on the basis of capitalism Mm -hmm. and it still serves that.
2: Yeah. I don't think that I reconcile my black queerness with Howard Law particularly at all. I don't think the law reconciles the blackness at all. Mm. I, I think mm-hmm. that one, I think the law is born out of not just blackness but also anti blackness. I think the bounds of the constitution are made out of the blood of black flesh. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's always going to be this kind of connection. Like the the black body has birthed the United States jurisprudence, mm-hmm. right? Not by choice. I think oh, the, a the a
0: antithesis of the black body has birthed the jurisprudence.
2: Well, I, I think you can look at that two ways, right? This antithesis, like the idea that like black people don't have bodies because mm-hmm. they're not human, but also the kind of like physical black body, the rape intellectually and sociopolitically, but also physically the black body has birthed what we know as American law. Mm-hmm. Right. So the reason there's able to be United States or a Constitution at all is because black people are dehumanized.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
2: like in that way, we become the canal for law. We Afro-pessim, become the birth canal of law. So, uh, yeah, 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 there's a lot of afro pessimism in that. But at the same time, stepping out of Afro-pessim and into this kind of afrofuturism, black joy, we also know that despite, us being forced to kind of birth this particular thing, we still exist outside and do these magical things. So I think there's like, there's not a reconciling. And I went to law school because I realized that like, a lot of us, um, and I think most of our people know how the law is violent toward black people. Right. Mm-hmm. But we don't know the cans of construction. We don't have standing mm-hmm. to stand up in a court. So we can write all the things we want and we can understand how it affects our bodies. But the ways in which white people in the white legal academia and white litigators see the law and read the law, is their reading is not intelligible to us and vice versa. Right. So so you have to begin to speak the language. And we talked about Du Bois earlier about this duality, this dual consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. So I have to be able to speak to white folks from black folks and vice versa. And also know when white people are speaking whiteness, that sounds like blackness is really white supremacy on crack. So you have mm-hmm. to be able to do that thing. And that being a black queer at Howard also taught me, though, that these, a lot of these HBCUs, and God bless them because they do great things, a lot of them are anti-black queer. And what does that mean when your HBCU is very Christian, mm-hmm. very interested in kind of this Howard man or Howard woman model, and you're queer, when man and woman are aberrations of blackness, right, we don't have to ever be split into separate things. Black is black is black is black is black And so when you go to a school where you have a conversation like brother to brother, woman to woman, where women are called up on stage because their weave is too long or their eyelashes are too thick or men are called and so they're not Howard men because their shoes are not buffed, you think about how is classism playing in here? Mm-hmm. What are we talking about when we say like, oh, your suit's not fresh enough? Who can afford a thousand dollar suit? And what does that suit represent? We know that suits and these uniforms represent a type of gatekeeping into the legal academia and legal world. So we're saying that you black poor person or you black queer person, you black other person, you don't belong here because you can't exhibit this type of performance properly. Right. And so for me, going to Howard was beautiful because of so many black, black loving professors that are also very queer in their practice. But also to know how like a lot of black boy people are being taught and molded and circumcised intellectually and culturally just in order to get through. And then, what does that mean when even our spaces can be anti black, mm-hmm. even our loving spaces? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean for the work we must do?
1: When you speak about circumcision, you speak of it in the way of a cleaving of self in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I, I know Brie and I have talked about this in terms of our legal education mm-hmm. and the ways that we've had to leave parts of ourselves behind. Mm-hmm. What did you feel like you were forced to sacrifice being? at Howard Law School and obtaining a, a JD, mm-hmm. and what do you think you're obtaining by going into a PhD program after the fact, whereas a lot of people think their law degree is the end of their education? You
2: know, I, I think that I was blessed enough at Tufts to study people like Christina Sharp um, and Sabina Vaught, um, and to meet people at Harvard Law, like Professor Oakaltree, mm-hmm. that taught me very early, and like, later like Imani Perry, that taught me very early on that circumcision is not the way. Mm-hmm. and so luckily and I, you know I wrote my book Godless Circumcisions or Remembering and Recollecting of Blackness Queerness and love during my first year of law school mm-hmm. because that was my refusal that was my insistence on black queer humanity that I was not actually going to leave anything behind right. and so I, I I suffered in many ways right so like one of the funniest stories I have I had this mm-hmm. professor who was the first chief prosecutor of at, at Guantanamo Bay and it was interesting because four of my professors in my first year of law school at Howard were white men which is very interesting <laughs> More white professors at yeah. Howard oh, Law. I don't think I
0: had any black professors. I had like, nine. until my like third year at No fame, see? absolutely
2: fame. Four, yeah. four white men, yeah. yeah. Yeah, see, but like at Tufts, I had no white professors.
0: Who also taught us to look at the law through an objective lens. Right. right. What does Madayan. That Madayan. Mean? Madayan. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you said at Howard, you had no.
2: No, at Tufts, I had oh, no Tufts? white professors. All my professors were black oh, wow. women. Wow. But when I came to Howard, most of my professors were white men. And I came to Howard to see how black people were being... <clears throat> excuse me, to how black people were being taught. Right. Right, so that was, like, very, very jarring. But so the story is, like, this professor, who was the chief prosecutor for Guantanamo Bay the first time around, he... I almost, like, filled his class. I got, like, a D in the class. Mm-hmm. Like, my first thing below 90 in my whole life. And... <laughs> I just published this article for Gawker, and he's going to post on Gawker on Twitter and like, oh, look at my one L student. He posts these great articles. He's such a strong writer, but you almost failed me because I refused to write in the ways in which that you called objective. Right. Because when you're writing about Black Lives, there is no objectivity. There is none. There is none. You have to tell the truth, you know. And they would like to. They would like you to say that if it's not following precedents, stare decisis, or what have you, then you're not actually doing like legal work. You're doing opinion work. But it's not the law always been an articulation of white supremacist opinions. Hello? <laughs> Woo! <laughs> like, so, and that's when I knew that I mm. had to choose, right? Because mm. my first semester, I was, a t- I was top of my class. And so I had to choose whether I was going to be play this game and write these articles and do this, and we're on the radio, and do these things, right, that mm. are anti-black in order to be the top of the class Howard Law, or I could write things that spoke to my mom's truth. I could write things in the ways in which my mother could understand them. Right. And it was Hello. true to where I grew up and be middling in the class. So what does that mean that you're at the Mecca Mm. and black life will sink you, black truth will sink you? I
0: wasn't prepared to go to church today. I wasn't. I wasn't. (laughs) I I did not know. I I was unprepared. I wasn't ready. She wasn't ready.
1: (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about the research that you're currently doing at UT. Mm -hmm. Um, You actually came to Harvard Law to do a workshop Mm -hmm. during the Journal on Racial and Ethnic Justices uh, Spring Symposium on Mm -hmm. Racial Justice and the Arts. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it'd it'd be really interesting to kind of talk about what you're researching, what you're thinking about, Mm -hmm. um, and how you're able to already express what you've learned through your program Mm -hmm. in the form of workshops.
2: All right, so broadly, I'm interested in thinking about the intersections of race, law, sexuality, and power. Um, And I would kind of trace my ideological or intellectual genealogy through uh, Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and take a swerve into Sadia Hartman and Bell Hooks and Christina Sharpe mm-hmm. and Jared Sexton um, and Du Bois and Douglas in, in particular ways, um, and also Omene, Omitesha and Natasha Tinsley. But so what I'm looking at is thinking about how the Constitution itself, right, is— endemically white supremacist. And not in a way that it just hates black people, I don't think the Constitution has a feeling. Mm -hmm. But the ways in which it's structured, its contours, insist on a type of black fugitivity beginning with the Fugitive Slave Act. So this idea that black people are always already criminal. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to think about how black people through space and time have responded to that. So first I look at uh, those that have been captured from Africa and are enslaved. How do they respond to the ways in which the Constitution is governing them? Or do they respond at all? Secondly, I look at those who have escaped slavery, the marooners, the freedmen, and those who have otherwise escaped. Thirdly, I look at those who are existing today. How do we deal with mass incarceration and other ways that violent laws have kind of affected us, or do we see them at all? And then lastly, I look to the black queer space, particularly at black queer houses, black queer communities, and the ballroom scene to think about how we've committed, how we've created alternative societies and alternative spaces that are aware of the violence of the law, but are responding to it in ways in which that are self-fulfilling and self-loving. So my question begins with, how do we deal with racial sexual terror as black and black queer people, and does that, how does that rearrange the ways in which we practice love, we practice the erotic, and we understand both life and death.
0: listeners can continue to listen to these types of questions and then self-evaluate because I don't have the answer I will definitely continue to think on it you definitely came ready and I was not ready for (laughs) that
1: thank you so much for that Tobias help us uh tell us a little bit about where we can find you what are you Mm -hmm. working on right now Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about your book too we definitely want to plug that um and about some of the work that you're currently working on
0: Social media, social media.
1: Yes. Okay, so you can find me on Twitter at Black Queer
2: Flow, B-L-A-Q-U-E-E-R Flow. Uh, you can also find me on my my blog website, blackqueerflow.com, or Tobias Olajuwon, T-A-B-I-A-S-O-L-A-J-U-A-W-O-N, all these same things on Facebook. Um, the book, The Last Book, Godless Circumcisions, is on Amazon. You can find it on any of these sites. And my next book coming up is The Funk of Blackness. Mm-hmm. So we're going to kind of think about uh, the ways in which like blackness is this kind of constitutive element of the universe and I want to think about how black babies and black children are multiverses and if we raise them right if we rear them right they might just actually save the world that they've come through so I want to kind of think about black multiverses and black queerness and black bodies as practice, essence, and tomorrow. Um, So that's going to be a really interesting collection of essays and poems, kind of like the last book was. Um, But, you know, right now, I'm working on new speaking gigs, doing a lot of, like, writings for different websites. I'm just launching a journal with the great Professor Angela Harris um, on law and political economy. Mother, mother, mother. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's, it's a very beautiful space. We're going to be writing in an interdisciplinary way. So if you're a law student you're a law professor, you're a professor in African-American studies, undergrad, grad, law, PhD, whatever, hit us up. We're going to be doing great stuff. And so in the fall, I'm going to be the first inaugural Distinguished Scholar of Residence um, okay. for the Ausley Scholarship at ben- Benoit College in Minnesota. So mm. it's going to be a two-day ordeal. It's going to be great if you're in Minnesota September 14th through 15th. Let me know.
0: Everything. Awesome.
1: Thank you so much, Shabaev. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much. <laughs>